Hi, you're listening to Offsite, a series of interviews with theatre makers who work in unusual, site-specific, site-responsive and non-traditional spaces. This series was recorded over two weeks in December 2020 and is supported by the Arts Council. I'm Owen Winning and in this episode I'm talking to Paul Keoghan. So I'm here with Paul Keoghan. Uh, Paul Keoghan is a lighting and set designer with an extensive back catalogue of designs for theatre, dance and opera. He has worked with companies such as The Abbey, The Traverse, The Royal Court, Druid, English National Ballet, uh, Rough Magic, and of great interest to me, has a long relationship with Kirkadurka. Aside from his design work, he is a divisor and director of Man of Aaron Reimagined. He even designed his own website. This year, Paul won Best Lighting Designer for The Big Chapel, um, The Glass Menagerie, and Blood in the Dirt at the Irish Times Theatre Awards. Uh, Paul, you're very welcome. Thanks for having a chat with me. Crikey, that was a good intro. Oh. I come back. <laughs> I mean, I took a lot of it from your uh, <laughs> your website, so. Oh, so I just said it. You're yeah, just you, you said it. Yeah, yeah. Well, bits and pieces, yeah. You. There you go. <laughs> Um, you stood, let's start at, at, you know, the beginning, I suppose. Um, you studied drama at Trinity and Glasgow University. So I take it you were interested in the arts from an early age or? Yeah, I was always interested in theatre. Um, I guess it was something that I stumbled on when I was a teenager. I used to go to the, I, I, as a young kid, I loved going to the cinema. That was like every birthday. That was my mm. treat. To, mm. to, and as soon as I started getting old enough to be able to go myself or to get pocket money to go, that's how I spend my money. So movies were, um, our cinema was a complete, was a huge love. And then kind of by accident, we used to go to the theatre on school trips and we'd, we'd generally go to the Abbey or the Gate or we'd go, mm-hmm. you know, we'd go, we'd go as an organised group. And I always enjoyed them, but they felt didn't have the same buzz for me as as uh, going to the cinema mm-hmm. and then I remember seeing a Dublin Youth Theatre show in the project quite by chance and I'd say I was about 15 or 16 at the time mm-hmm. and it completely blew me sideways and I always think of it as like those um, experiences that music- musicians talk about seeing the clash in the Hammersmith Odeon right. when they were 16 and yeah, they, yeah. they ran home and and, and started their own band. Yeah, yeah. Started it was kind of the same guitar. experience for me. Exactly. Oh, exactly, exactly, exactly. And playing, you know, singing into a hairbrush and playing mm. a tennis racket. It was exactly <laughs> the same for me. I I, I just remembered. Um, it was in the old project, and it, it was just brilliant. And um, I remember it was a Peter Sheridan play called Bust, and it was a. a all of a drug smuggling. It was kind of like a Midnight Express story set mm. in Dublin. Um, 
And it was quite far-fetched, you know, it was quite far-fetched. Even at the time, I thought, God, this is a bit far-fetched. But there was something, it had an immediacy because I could really recognise the people on stage. Mm. They'd play, maybe the more classical plays that our teachers would bring us to as part of a school group didn't really have the same resonance for me. Mm -hmm. So um, I just loved it and I loved the project and I loved... Um, I love that whole, the whole experience, the mm. whole experience of like, again, Temple Bar, this would have been, I'm giving my age away now, but this would have been in the mid 1980s. So Temple Bar was a really different place. Mm. And um, actually early 1980s, I'm really okay. giving my age away. Um, <laughs> and Temple, Temple, but it was a very different place. You know, there was still, it was a big old warehouse. It wasn't the kind of coffee shops and, mm. um, glitzy galleries that it is now. It's lots of old industrial warehouse spaces. And, um, you know, it, it felt, it felt it was a really magical part of the city in a completely different way to mm. the way that area was then. So it was kind of an adventure going to the project and an adventure being there. Mm. Fantastic. But yeah, and then, uh, and that, that, that was the, that was the spark that kind of, hit the touch paper and after that I just got involved in youth theatre I went to drama classes mm -hmm. and I went to go and see as much theatre as I possibly could and I didn't really know what the um, uh, I didn't even consider it as a career thing it was more as a kind of it was more of a passionate thing and mm -hmm. you know going to drama classes is a great way of meeting girls so yeah you know it was literally I, I that's that's why um, it was the social side as much as the uh, oh, totally, the theatre, totally, like, yeah. totally, and just I suppose, I mean, uh, people tend to use this expression about how they found their tribe, but I mean, for me, that was really very much the case. It was mm. suddenly you found people who were um, non-judgmental and who had a similar interest and passion to uh, to what you had, and. Um, were very interesting and articulate people and um they became you know they became really a lot of them became really close and still are really close friends of mine and people mm -hmm. I was in new theater with so yeah um so then it was kind of a natural progression i was i was in my final year at school and um i'm really showing my age now and the drama department was just starting up in right. trinity yeah, yeah um so they had an open day um and I went along to that and I went, this is brilliant. This is what, this is what I want to do. And there was never, I, I'd only one. And only one the only thing, thing on the I list. Yeah. 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 So yeah, I, I went and I, I did that. And it's, it's kind of interesting when you look back on it and you think, God, there was no real great master plan to it. I kind mm. of drifted in and I was very, I was extremely lucky. Mm. Um, and uh, but I mean, I went to into college thinking I wanted to be an actor because I'd done a lot. Yeah, I was, I was going to ask. Yeah, did you perform or, or were you always backstage? Mm, really badly. Yeah. Really, really badly. <laughs> um, I think it's a great service to Irish theatre that I've been kept off stage for the past <laughs> however many number of years. Yeah, I was desperate. Um, what do you mean badly? Now, were you like forgetting lines and stuff, or? No, I was, um, I was probably, God, I've never really analysed it beyond the fact oh, okay. that it was um, But um, I'd say, I'd say I was 
probably a ham. I oh. probably would have hammed things up for laughs. There'd be lots of double takes. Oh, God. Like that. Yeah. No, it's, oh, it's, that's let's the worst. not analyse that any <laughs> okay. No, that's fine. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I, 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 I wasn't lying to you. I was pretty grim. But the thing that really intrigued me about being on the stage was um, uh, I loved scenery and I loved looking mm. at the scenery and I loved looking at the way scenery went together. And particularly that whole thing of looking at the backs of flats mm. um, and the, the kind of intricate carpentry yeah. about how scenery is built and the perspective that you see from being on stage that isn't the kind of shiny painted illusory side that you show to the audience mm. it's the kind of more constructed um rough side oh yeah that you see from the spit and sawdust. the other side of the, the, the process. exactly and i love that mm. um and um it, it was funny because my uh, like we don't really have uh I don't come from a big artistic family mm-hmm. um, and my folks were kind of slightly concerned as again you you know folk they they would have been but they were kind of as long as you're happy it doesn't really matter what you what, what it is you're doing but they said you should really have something as a backup plan in case acting doesn't work out so I said well look my backup plan is I'll be a set designer mm. what could possibly go wrong and um, you know never thought about it. I thought this was as you know I, I, must, I must say like this that made perfect sense to me. that that doesn't seem like um you know for for a parents you know that might not seem like the best choice it's like don't worry I won't be an actor I'll be a, a theater designer you yeah, know, no, they kind of go I, like oh I, I well that's much better <laughs> yeah yeah no I don't think they were I don't think they were even slightly fooled but they mm. kind of went okay fair enough we'll, we'll see how long this this phase lasts so how did you how did you make the was, switch then sorry Sorry, how did you uh, make the switch from, you know, on stage to off stage? Was it sort of a gradual thing or or did you one day decide, oh, you know what, actually, I prefer? It was pretty, it was pretty much one day. It was towards the end of my first year in college and I'd done, um, I'd been in a lot of the drama department plays mm-hmm. and um, and I'd, I'd been involved in Trinity Players quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And we had um, a bunch of friends that had formed a theater and myself had formed a theater company over the summer of the, my very, f- my first year mm-hmm. to put plays on in Trinity players. And um, I, we all did everything. So uh, as well as um, acting in the show, we're make we're sewing costumes and yep. thing. everybody who would have been through student drama societies would have would have done but this was kind of condensed into this was really intensive over the period of the four months of the summer holidays so mm-hmm. um i just i just decided that this is what i preferred to do and when i went back um i started doing more design there was a set design option as part of the the course when i went into trinity we were the second uh, intake of students that they had right and the brilliant thing about that was that it was uh, a little bit it was a little bit ad hoc because they they um the courses weren't rigid and weren't set in stone so if people were really interested in designer in my case halfway through that my second year I became really interested in writing mm. and the, so they kind of cre- 
myself and a, and a bunch of other people requested that there be more lighting. So they, they drafted in, they made a lighting design option, mm. um, uh, which I think was brilliant. Yeah. Brilliant time to be a student because literally if you, shoot, if you showed an initiative or an interest in any particular subject, they were brilliant at marshalling the resources, and they probably still are, mm. um, marshalling the resources and encouraging that uh, enthusiasm that the students showed. So, um, yeah, I guess I just, I, I, after my first year, I didn't do, I didn't do any You more didn't before. do any more acting. So, uh, so you... It would be a great service to Irish. It's probably <laughs> the best thing I've ever done for Irish theatre. <laughs> Okay, um, so you, you finished up the degree and at, at one point you were um, the production manager in Project Art Centre, is that right? And that's, yeah, that's... What, uh, what was that like? I mean, I presume that would have been quite early then in Project, or no, so Project was probably going since the This 60s, was, this no, it was late in the old building. Late in the old um, building, I see. Yeah, this was long before the big blue building was, uh, uh, well, not long before, but... Um, yeah, I, I, I guess Project always has and always had a really special place for me because it was, you know, it, it was where I saw the clash, you know, you know, mm -hmm. it was where mm -hmm. I had my epiphany about theatre in the first yeah. place. So I always, it always had this kind of slightly magical status uh, with me. And it's funny because it's, 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 even though I probably I haven't done a show there in years, it's still the theatre that I kind of associate myself with. Mm. Um, as opposed to anywhere else um, but yeah it, uh, so kind of a long story short I left college I was doing a lot of uh, freelance crewing work so mm -hmm. did quite a bit of work in project mm. I was also working for um, the guy who really the two people who really taught me about lighting was is, uh, a guy called Bernard Griffin, who was the, um, at the time, uh, ran uh, a lighting company, a lighting hire company. I was right. one of the people who ran a lighting hire company called Lighting Dimensions. Mm -hmm. And they used to do, um, as well as hiring equipment, they used to do, uh, they, they, they get crew in and they do production on events. Usually things like, well, they did gigs, um, uh, fashion shows, car launches, that sort of thing. Yeah, so yeah. I got a bit of work crewing with um, with those guys as well. Mm -hmm. There's another guy called Kevin Saunders who was the um, he was the technical manager for a couple of years in the drama department in Lombard. When when again, I'm really showing my age here. Before <laughs> the existing uh, Samuel Beckett Centre was built. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the drama department was housed in a building in Westland Row and there was a studio uh, very close to there on Lombard Street, mm -hmm. um, which is now a gallery, uh, which was our performance space. And Kevin was the technical manager there. Right. And he was, um, and still is, uh, a fine lighting designer in his own right and um, was a big influence on me in terms of um, kind of took took me under his wing and uh, kind of showed me, I mean, showed me the basics of, uh, of lighting and putting systems together and mm. um, 
So that, that was kind of, and it was between, between those two guys, that was the more or less the sum total of all the training I've ever had. Right, um, yeah. So, I mean, they were really, really brilliant. Sorry, go on. Oh yeah, no, no, that's grand. Um, so you... And, um, so then, sorry, yeah, I, we were talking about project. I, so I left college and I was freelance for a, a couple of years, maybe, um, uh, maybe about three or four years doing small wee shows um, and but also crewing and doing production work on larger shows because mm. the small wee shows weren't really paying any money mm-hmm. and then uh, a job vacancy made uh, appeared in project and that was brilliant because um, and not not really because for for why you think you think because um Back in the day, myself and the crew, and it was a really small crew in project, um, but brilliant, brilliant people. Mm. Um, but we would look mm-hmm. after the gallery space and the performance space. And we also did quite a lot of offsite stuff as well. Right. Um, so putting in a theatre show was kind of, was reasonably familiar territory because that's mm-hmm. something that I'd done through college and it's something that I'd done quite a bit of uh, since I'd left college so that and and also that theatre space even though it was um, idiosyncratic it was kind of on three sides it, w- it was less flexible than the space is now mm-hmm. um, it still it it kind of felt it felt like home mm-hmm. the the, the eye opener was working in the gallery and working mm-hmm. with visual artists because that's something that I had very little experience of before yeah. And um, that was just brilliant because it was, um, you know, you get somebody who come in and it, because we knew the building was kind of on its, in its last days, um, nobody was particularly precious about it. So if somebody wanted to drill a hole in the wall, we, we, we got just, a big drill and yeah. a hole in the wall. There okay. was no, um, th- there was no head scratching about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. And it was, absolutely no preciousness at all with with the building or what we could do with with the building and we trashed the place um uh, <laughs> frequently um, yeah several times a year and that was brilliant mm. um the, the thing that i learned from that was that you know i remember at one stage somebody came in and they said they wanted a, a, sl- a couple of s- concrete slabs so I was thinking of, well, would we build it in plywood and architects it and paint it up like concrete? And they were saying, no, no we, we just want get some concrete some slabs. Yeah, yeah. Get, some con- get some cement mixers in and do that. And that was, and it was the first time I heard the expression of integrity of materials. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I've completely taken with me as a designer. Because you, the, the one thing they didn't want was they didn't want any kind of theatricality, and be, mm. especially because of the proximity of the visual art space with the performance space and with the mm-hmm. theatre. So they were visual artists, without exception, were very clear that their space wasn't an extension of the theatre. Mm. Um, and I learned a huge amount. Absolute. Yeah. I can still remember. I can still remember some of those grim overnights. Mm. trying to install these beautiful pieces of artwork crying because we couldn't get you know because concrete wasn't setting or yeah, yeah. because we drilled a hole in the roof and <laughs> the paint was but it was it was a brilliant brilliant time really exciting time mm. and i spent 
uh, I spent a couple of really happy years there and I learned a huge amount. Um, mm. um, so were, were you still designing um, freelance work while you were working in project? Uh, yeah, I pretty much started designing um, the, it was the, the summer I left college. I, I was really lucky. I got, um, I was asked to do, I remember my first job was with the National Youth Dance Company. Uh, and it was a show in project. Mm. Um, project is kind of the center of this year. It's going to be the center of this yeah, yeah, yeah. It was the center of my universe. Yeah. And that was brilliant. Um, and it, uh, it seemed, I mean, uh, to me, it was the biggest show on the, on the planet. I felt like I'd won the lottery and I was so chuffed to be asked to do it. And, um, it was just a, again, it was a fantastic experience and it went well. Mm. Um, uh, I remembered there was, uh, three pieces maybe there was four there was definitely three that i remember god that's mm -hmm. really bad if there was if it turns out there was four maybe edit that bit out okay. um, but i i remember three of them really really distinctly and uh i just had such a uh, it was you know great it was great and it felt it felt really exciting it felt like this is what i want to do and um it kind of it set me off in a particular trajectory because I started working a lot with dance companies pretty mm. much as a result of that gig. I was asked to do a few more. Mm. And um, and that's the way my career has kind of gone. It hasn't followed any... I've just... I followed it rather than right. trying to push it in any particular direction. Yeah, you didn't have like so, a five-year plan or something that you were going by. Yeah. No, I still don't. Mm. Uh, maybe I should, but I still don't know. Um, well, if it works for you so far, you know. Well, it's it's the funny thing is though, you do wake up and you suddenly realize, heck, I went to the last 20, 30 years maybe go. Mm. Um, no, I mean it's 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 been it has been absolutely brilliant. Um and it's been um even when there were moments when you you kind of got to the last job that you had in your calendar, and I sometimes feel this in and around November time, around this time of year, mm. generally, I would feel an anxiety if I don't have any jobs in the first part of the next year. Mm. Funny enough, I don't have any jobs mm. in the first part of next year, and I don't really, I'm, I'm not too bothered yeah. for the first time in years. Um, but, um, and I always found that something presents itself. Mm. Um, so, uh, whether by accident or design or some mm. kind of divine intervention, that's that's always I've always been very fortunate uh, for that to happen. So it's it's been great. Yeah, um, and I mean I think it is that one job leads to another as well. You know, if if you are consistently making good work and people are enjoying your work, then you know they, they talk to each other and and that's I mean that in my experience that's that's been probably the source of all my work has been somebody yeah. else seeing something I did previously. Exactly, um yeah. so um going back to to those those days um were you were you working were you designing lights only were you designing sets or um for a long period of time i only designed lights 
Um, there's a couple of reasons for that. I don't, I'd always, I'd always thought of lights as being a temporary, I, you know, I, I always saw myself as an aspiring set designer. Mm-hmm. Um, but I always felt that I probably needed more training as a set designer. Mm-hmm. Um, so the plan, my plan had been when I finished in Trinity, I was going to go away and do the equivalent of a master's or some kind of postgrad in design and really kind of hone those skills a little bit. Mm. Um, but that didn't happen. Um, I just started working. And as I say, the the kind of old plans, old bets were off. Um, and then, you know, a couple of years later, project happened. And I've, I've, I kind of felt there was a momentum. And mm. I felt if I went back into any kind of education, that momentum might get stalled. And even I found actually about a year in of uh, to project, even though it was a fantastic time, I felt that um, uh, I kind of felt that I was I wasn't I was really I, w- I wasn't given enough attention to the design stuff, mm. and um, you know, so I needed to to look at that balance. And project were brilliant at. Um, uh, at giving time off. So we we'd a really good kind of time off in lieu of overtime arrangement. Mm. Oh, great, uh, yeah. And I took full advantage of that mm. uh, in that, um, you know, I would go and go off and I'd do not as much as I would maybe normally have done, but I would go and I'd do a tour or I'd go off and I'd um, do a show and um, there was something really satisfying about that because it kind of kept your creative juices flowing, um, but also you were in steady employment, so you were getting yeah regular salary as yeah, well. Yeah, which so is a huge benefit. Words. Like yeah, oh, completely. And I, I mean, the, and not even the icing on the cake. The, the 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 main thing about it, as I said, was that. You were just learning so mm. much um, that it, it was it almost became like doing a master's. But yeah. to answer your question, because the the time commitment for a lighting designer is less on any project usually mm-hmm. is less than that of a set and costume designer. Mm-hmm. I was concentrating on doing lights because I could and yep. I could balance that with my work in projects yeah. better than. Uh, doing a set design but I really missed doing set design mm-hmm. as well um, and what sort of venues were you working in oh no um, gosh I was doing an awful lot of stuff um, well obviously I was I was designing a lot of stuff that was coming into project mm-hmm. so uh, there was that kind of weird you had to split yeah, split yeah. your role um, so <laughs> can we put also, that there I don't exactly, know. Can we? <laughs> exactly who can I give out to about this mess um uh I did a fair few shows in the Tivoli on Francis Street right I, I was working at that time I was working as I said with a lot of dance companies so there were people like John Scott's company mm-hmm. um Dance Theatre of Ireland I worked with quite a bit as well um the company Dagda down in Limerick with the choreographer Mary Noon and Dagda have gone through various kind of iterations mm-hmm. but uh, at the time I worked with them 
um, with, with this brilliant choreographer, Mary Noonan. And we did, we did a lot of work. So we did a lot of, a lot of stuff in um, uh, the Bell Table in Limerick. And um, uh, my favorite venue for a long, long time, well, two favorite venues. I loved touring to the Everyman in Cork and Sheen Satira because I just thought they were mm. beautiful theatres and they had such good crews. Mm. Um, now, I should say that every theatre in Ireland at that time had brilliant crews, <laughs> but uh, I, I just found that the crews that we ran into in, in Cork and Tralee were just, there was something kind of special about it. Mm. And I, I still say Sheen Satira is one of the most beautifully designed buildings. Oh, yeah, yeah, architecturally, yeah, it's just stunning, isn't it? superb um and i think it's the only catwalk in ireland that i can walk around without bending over you know as well it's just exactly it's fantastic i remember somebody telling me that um i've forgotten the capacity i think the capacity is about 400 400 yeah yeah maybe um they'd worked out that uh it, it at an interval 400 people will have a cup of tea and their saucer and their saucer is such and such a diameter mm. and they've worked out the ledge all the way around the foyer there's enough space for somebody to stand with their cup of tea and mm. a club milk and their saucer will fit perfectly and that it, that's the kind of detail that i just mm. think is marvelous that yeah, the public yeah. space has been given as much thought as the performance space and also the tank, because you can get from the control room, can't you, to backstage on yeah. the catwalks? Yeah, overhead. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah just... it's it's all these little these little things. I love I love touring in there. Yeah, look forward to going back. Absolutely, um, but they, they were the places. Like I mean, that my, my memory of those heady years in the early nineties was there was an awful lot more touring, mm. and we were spending an awful lot more time in um, Cork and Kerry and coming up north as well. Like mm. uh, I remember doing a lot of shows in Derry and Belfast and the other spectacular theatre, which, you know, I live in Belfast now, but I never get to is the Ardone in Enniskillen, which is just... I don't think I've ever been there. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, and it, so, I, I mean, it seems to me, and again, maybe I'm just... Uh, looking at things through rose-tinted glasses, but it seemed to me that there was a lot more touring mm. back in those days. And I used to go out on, and do my own relights. Um, right. So uh, so, th- so when you're asking about venues that I normally worked in, it feels to me like... It's just like was, every, yeah, all of them. Well, it just felt like, tour- yeah, it felt mm. like touring. And then if I was to be tied to a specific venue, it would be somewhere like Project. Yeah. As a sort of a local locus point, yeah. um, what uh, what sort of equipment were you working with in the nineties? Oh, I mean, um, obviously park ends, but yeah, it was very. Um, I mean, again, uh, all old. I mean, I even remember at the time, all of the kit that we had was old. Mm. Um, there's a great story about an American lighting designer. Uh, turning up in the Abbey around about this time and actually seeing close up and personally how old the Abbey stock was and saying, you know, 
you guys are living in the last century and kind of being a bit pointed at the crew oh. so you're living in the last century and one of the crew turned around to him and said yeah well we're still six hours ahead of you pal oh. um, so uh, <laughs> but that was if that was my experience because a lot of the equipment that you you would work with in project was older than i was um, <laughs> it was you know <laughs> falling to bits um, I kind of had been lovingly restored, but it mm. was on its last legs. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I mean, none of none of the venues would have had um, uh, would have had um, much to spend on equipment. Yeah. Um, the consoles were all very basic. I mean the. Mm -hmm. If you if you had any kind of memory console, you were fancy, right? Yeah. Um, and also, we didn't when we toured, which is part of the reason why I would have to go out and tour, is we wouldn't take a big rig with us. Sure. We'd be using in house. We'd be using whatever was there. Yeah. Yeah. So the shows would kind of be redesigned around what was available. Yeah. So again, that must have been a great learning experience of going like. Not only can you find out what this lamp does in this venue, but it might do a completely different thing because it might be either in worse condition or, you know, you know, all these little small things that make huge differences. Absolutely. And that was one of the reasons why, you know, it was great to go to somewhere like the Everyman because there was they had a really good crew in, mm. and they had quite a good stock of kit. Mm. So you could do much more. And... Um, you know, and they had somebody who'd program the desk for you, so you didn't have to to program the desk. Nice. Um, and that felt, you know, it 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 felt like much more. I I don't know. It 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 just felt more kind of progressive in terms of, it in terms of, the, because you had the people there, the work was being taken a little bit more seriously. Whereas mm. there were certain venues that you went to where the equipment was in such bad nick, you'd be taking your life in your hands, mm. even touching the stuff. Yeah, yeah. So. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, I mean, what was, the, what was the moment where you felt you had sort of like arrived as a fully formed designer? Was, I mean, was it around this time? Or, or I suppose yeah, were, were you still considering other paths? It would have been when I when I, I left Project in December '96, and I had decided I decided to go, but it would have been during the summer before that. So, um, I think at that stage I just thought, right, I need to make a decision. I need to make a go. I see if we can make a go of it, and um, that would that was the. That was the moment. I, I remember doing one job um, as a kind of production assistant after I left project and I just said, right, that's it, never again. I don't, not, not because it was a bad experience, I just thought, I don't, this isn't what that's I That's just to not do. for you, yeah. Yeah, and there are people who are, the other thing that you discover is that people who are far better, you know, they're far better. I was a terrible production manager. There are far, <laughs> And, you know, people who want to be production managers, I I have a huge amount of respect for because I think it's a really tough job. 
I, a woeful stage manager. So I have huge respect for, for, for those people because they can do things that I just can't, I can't do them. Mm. Um, so, yeah. I absolutely, yeah, I hear that. I agree with that sentiment completely. Mm. Um, and I think anyone but who's ever worked with me as a production manager would probably agree as well. Well, no, no, no. I mean, the thing that, it, again, put it, putting it into context, um, I, I, I've only assisted once, and I, uh, the person I assisted was Rupert Murray, right. who was a phenomenal lighting designer, absent mm-hmm. by any standards, a phenomenal lighting designer. But the times that I assisted him, and most of the assistant work that I did with him, was when he was production manager in The Gate. And I was like assisting him doing the production management bit while mm. he was to give him some free time so right. he could do the lighting design bit. Mm. And I remember him saying, you know, um, I wish I could be a full time lighting designer, but they just don't, it doesn't pay. So, mm. and you, it was a bit discouraging for me as a kind of young gun yeah. to hear, you know, the person you think is like, yeah, the bee's knees kind of saying that. Exactly, you know, and uh, it's it's that that I'd like to think that that has changed a little bit, but that that was the reality of the time. That for you, for you to say that you were going to just work as a designer and not to also be a chief electrician or not also to. Um, do some casual crewing work mm. w- was considered pie in the sky. Mm. Um, but I just realized that I didn't want to do this. I didn't mm. want to do this, um, this crewing work. And it's not some, it's not something I'm particularly good. You know, I was mm. never particularly good at it. So, um, you know, there are those kind of small little humiliations when you fuck something up. Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> And you, you re- wire you re- it the wrong way <laughs> yeah or you do something like you do something it's not even that you do something ridiculous or you do something dangerous or you do something it's just when you do something wrong mm. or you know when you tie a knot wrong and mm. it's you know that was that was my you know it's never a boy scout so no right it's, yeah you got no time for that no. um so paul i'd like to ask you about your work with Kirkadurka. um now i saw Wojciech <laughs> Um, with uh, John McCarthy of Hammergren and it left a huge impression on us. And I think we'd both agree that it went a long way in sort of the sort of path that we ended up, uh, the kind of work that we wanted to make. Um, so was that your first time working with Kirk Durka? Um Was yeah, it your first it was, large-scale promenade show? It, was, it wasn't the first promenade show. That I, well... I'd done, I'd done a, I, yeah, it, it was the first, it was the first large scale outdoor promenade show. I'd done a big promenade show before in um, the Museum of Modern Art, right. right after I left college. Again, with another dance company, we were given a residency there. <coughs> Excuse me. And, um, uh, basically built this dance piece 
through the West Wing of the Museum of Modern Art. And it, it was a fantastic experience. And it had, a, it had a kind of profile to it as well, which was, which was great. Um, I'd worked with Pat Kiernan the previous year, or maybe pre two years prior to Wojciech, um, doing a show in Kilkenny. And we'd, we'd known each other just from being around, because yeah. we're, we're of a similar, we're a similar vintage. Um, and he had suggested uh, that he'd always wanted to, to do Wojciech and he'd been trying to get um, into Hall Bowling to do it. Mm. Um, so I, again, distinctly remember that time because it was, we had about a year of prep and pre-production. Right. Um, before maybe nine months to a year, um, which you know was kind of an extraordinary amount of time uh, for for that kind of gestation, but it was really necessary. Mm. Um, uh, just for all kinds of reasons, you know, it's it's a uh, you know it's a military installation for a start, so you know there's, there's all of that kind of security clearance and all of that malarkey mm -hmm. that you have to go through. But the Navy were fantastic. I mean, they were, um, there's kind of a misnomer, I think, about doing offsite or site specific work where uh, we as artists feel somehow beholding to our landlords or the people who own the site and that mm -hmm. we are somehow, um, uh, they're doing us a favor. Mm. And we have to be constantly, you know, uh, cup in hand asking them for everything. Mm -hmm. And working with the Navy was brilliant because it was completely the it was like they could not do uh, enough for us. Um, uh, so they were really involved in the shows. Was the, their electricians would have worked oh, yeah. with the crew. Yeah, yeah. If we needed mains anywhere, they laid it out. Mm. Um, they were brilliant about. You know, we we use this little spit of land called Rat Island, which is where the show started and finished. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and they built a pontoon bridge out to it, you know, and it, that in itself. I mean, that's like, amazing. Yeah, <laughs> like, and it was just like, boom, whatever, whatever about Whoa, drilling a hole in a wall, you know, like oh, building yeah. a bridge to an island. <laughs> they, they built bridges. They 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 were proper. I mean, the funny the funny thing I remember about it. Um, is the very first, I wish I'm sure I have a photograph of this somewhere. And if I dig it out, I'll send it to you. But oh, uh, do, yeah. we had a, <clears throat> one of the first site visits that we had, because um, the site is huge and we didn't know what the journey of the audience was going to be. Mm. And it took quite a while for that to become clear to us. It only I think it only really solidified itself in rehearsal time mm. but I don't know if you remember on site some of it's very new and very modern and very very shiny and then mm -hmm. some of it is um, uh, like late 19th century early 20th century mm -hmm. um, particularly the on site quarters so there's like these little streets mm -hmm. of two up two down houses that were um, no longer used. Right. So okay. The Navy would use them as storage mm -hmm. uh, units, and some of them were in. Some of them aren't in Great Nick, 
but there was one in the center of it. And uh, I remember the our kind of liaison officer, because every time we went on site, we always had to have a, 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 a naval person yeah. with us to make sure we didn't steal any ships or anything. <laughs> and this guy was really, he was giving us the tour, I remember the first tour, and he was really proud of the, the whole entire site and the history of the site. Mm. And he pointed to this house. It was like a two up, two down house, but it, it had been painted and really badly painted with that kind of navy zigzag gray camouflage. And it had been fitted with uh, naval doors. Right. And it had, you know, um, the windows were painted with just little portholes left clear. And it was, where they used to train the armed assault teams. So they'd blast doors inside. The, the inside wow. was amazing. It's like peppered with bullet holes all over the place. So it's like a fantastic space to go into. Yeah. But you looked at this place and particularly the outside, this kind of really bad zigzag camouflage painting. And it looked like it had been really badly painted. But he would thought it looked really theatrical. Oh, of course. And it, it looked, but it looked like a really bad set. It looked like a really bad design choice. <laughs> so I was, I took weeks of kind of negotiation of how do we say it to them that they're just going to have to paint that oh, fucking thing back. Yeah, yeah. And it's funny because you can still see in the production photos because it, it was where we had the captain's house. So it was Frank O'Sullivan up in a second floor house mm -hmm. and he's shouting down at Wojciech mm -hmm. from this white house. But if you look at the production, you can, you can, see, can see the outline, the trace of yeah. this really bad painting behind the white. But they were brilliant. Like they, you know, So they did all of that painting. They did a lot of the construction. They built, um, they built a bridge for us. Yeah. yeah they were amazing. It's fantastic. Um, now, like I kind of actually really remember the plot of of the play, but like the images are, I can still clearly um, remember them. And there's like one image that I think from the start of the play, um, which you were just saying like Rat Island there, but the performer like lit, you know, by a bonfire. And then the, I don't know. So the night that we saw it, this scene was happening. And in the background, this giant like, mile long oil tanker sailed past and yeah. then up behind that like all the lights of cove were like kind of on and kind of twinkling and so just the scale of this image like was that something that you knew was going to happen or was this something that you you, you had uh, no we idea blew all our, we blew all our budget on those oil tankers every <laughs> night. no the, the oil tanker was a fluke that would have been the end of the show because yeah. the show started at the end, yes, of course, yeah, 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 on Rat Island, and it was yeah. usually kind of it was daylight or twilight or getting into the golden hour when the show started, but That's it was right. pitch yeah. black when it when it finished, mm -hmm. and it, that happened a couple of times. In fairness, we did have a big freight ship, but um, it was completely because you're at the mercy of the tides as well. So sure, what what passing traffic. Um, is dictated by the depth of the water in the channel there. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, it, I mean, we knew... It's, it's interesting because we knew that the, the decision to end um, on Rat Island, to, to bookend on mm -hmm. Rat Island, came quite quickly. But we also knew that 
obviously you're always going to have the vista of the lights and cove in the background so you're mm. not going to be able to do any kind of blackout at the end or mm. any big definite um full stop at the end of the show mm. so uh we had a different idea that there would be a fire uh lit uh, like a little bonfire mm. and that Wojciech would kick this into the water so that it you know the the the, the wood and the coal and whatever yeah. i've forgotten what was in it was just like, like a, yeah. a, a a bucket mm. um not realizing that you get this huge shower of sparks not realizing until the first time we tried it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was the most amazing ending. So we just yeah. fucking, yeah, let's, let's go with that. Fantastic. Um, yeah, there was a lot of, I mean, I'd love to say loads of these things were planned, but actually they weren't. Um, uh, a lot of them, um, it's kind of a testament, I think, to, to Pat Kiernan and the way he maps um the routes that mm. audience take um he's got a really good instinct for that mm -hmm. and um it's fairly unfailing he's he's really good about the relationship of the audience to the performer to the bigger environment mm. and mm. that picture um so i mean i'd love again love to take loads of credit for oil tankers and indeed for the entire village of Cove <laughs> uh, it was outside a town of Cove Jesus yeah oh god oh god I'll have to edit that bit yeah. out as well yeah. um so like I mean that that it seemed like it was a massive technical undertaking as well like in terms of the size of the the site and that um I, I, obviously the navy were helping you out with all that stuff mm -hmm. but like with your kind of production manager hat on did you ever kind of look at something and go, oh, you know, it's going to be it's going to be very difficult to put a lamp here. I really want one here, but it's going to be like a big job to do. So maybe, you know, I won't bother. Or did you just kind of go like, I'm the designer. I need a lamp there. The crew will, you know, make that happen. Um, gosh, I don't remember specifically, to be honest with you, in all Boland. Uh, I don't remember us not being able to do anything um, right, wow. because we had a tremendous amount of support and it mm. was a lot of I think the, de the decisions that were made were based around what it is we could do. Um, I remember the one decision that I made I didn't stick to this uh, rigidly but I had said at one stage to Pat that um, I'd like to try and use as much as possible to try and use um, stuff that we found on site. So for example, we built a stage out of pallets mm -hmm. because we found rakes of pallets there. Mm -hmm. they, we, they weren't something we brought in. All we did was we kind of structured it and screwed them all together. Mm -hmm. And because they'd been there and they'd weathered it felt like we hadn't made a m massive intervention. The other thing that we did, because the Navy has a seemingly endless supply of, is we use lots of festoon lighting. Yeah. And we use that and we put it on different circuits to guide people around. Mm -hmm. So when one scene finished, the festoon 
this string of festoon would go off and this and you'd yeah. follow the light yeah uh, yeah, yeah. as our rationale mm. <clears throat> and that was simply because they used that to decorate their ships right. and they uh, and and also it felt completely right for that site mm. um and it would have felt wrong to bring something else in. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? It just, yeah, yeah. It just seemed like but also, it, it, you know, I mean, that was perfect. You know, yeah, there's exactly. No, there's there's nothing that you could bring in that would be better than that, really. You know. But also, it's interesting now that you mention it because the other thing that they had a load of, which we used a load of, was they had a lot of those outdoor fluorescents, and that's become a little bit of a thing, mm. I suppose, a little bit of a trademark that I would use with. Um, with Car- both with Karkadarka and in my own work as well, mm-hmm. and that that's where that started. And I right. think that the Navy had a stash of them, and we found we needed more. And I think we we bought Car- we as in Karkadarka bought maybe twenty or thirty more, mm. and that was probably where the guts of the lighting budget went on. And yeah. they were then used in subsequent performances. So, um, a good good investment there. Really good investment, but it's it's also beyond it being an investment, it kind of is a bit of an aesthetic as well, mm-hmm. um, because uh, we've used them in indoor shows and in outdoor shows, and um, they've gotten you know they've gotten us out of loads of di- loads of different jams. So rather mm-hmm. than hiring lots of kit and spending all this money on it, we we're quite judicious about stuff that we bought mm. and, and used and then were able to reuse. And we were really lucky because I remember we did the Harry Ape the year after and we did the same sort of thing with festoons and we borrowed those festoons off the Navy. I mean, I was borrowing stuff off the Navy for years. Really? Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. Fantastic. Um, so you, it seems like you really enjoyed working offsite then. I mean, was it hard to go back into into traditional venues again after that or were you sort of kind of going like you know it's funny because i don't see it as being a huge difference Mm -hmm. it's it's funny because i feel like um i suppose my background i keep going back to project and back Mm -hmm. to the old project which was um and had started its life as a, a printing press, mm-hmm. the building that we were in. Mm-hmm. Um, so it wasn't a custom built theatre. So it felt almost like I, I feel very at home in non theatre spaces mm-hmm. that are um, appropriate for performances to take place in, mm-hmm. uh, if that makes any sense at all. Yeah. So it, the, the kind of going back to doing a show in the Abbey or the Gate or the Gaiety feels, they always feel like slightly strange spaces, whereas an off-site space, it just feels, it kind of feels normal. Mm. Um, it wasn't really, it's not really a big adjustment because I think that every project is different and I think that every project you put into it, um, what it is you want, you want to get out of it. So, mm-hmm. I mean, the amount of like the amount of visits that we made to Hoboken for Wojciech was huge, and it was probably way more than 
um, you know, normal attendance at rehearsals in a more conventional structure. Mm. We probably did way more pre-production meetings. We probably did um, way more site visits, certainly. We had way more production meetings mm. simply because we were teasing out options. Um, and the site itself presented us with those options. And we wanted to get the best results. Um, so uh, that was the impetus to, to, to keep doing that. That makes absolute, that's, I've just been speaking drivel. But, um, <laughs> no, yeah. I think I get you though. Yeah, there was something about that, like offsite work, I don't think it's that different from uh, from working in a theater mm -hmm. it, I think it's 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 not more difficult mm. but I think it's got you've got so many more options that I think you need to refine and distill what it is your vision mm. about how this space is going to work for you and for yeah, your yeah, yeah. Yeah. and how it's going to support. Mm -hmm. the performance that you're putting into it or the piece that you're putting into it. Yeah. And I think that um, th that comes with the responsibility to make sure that you have it right, mm. I think. Yeah, Again, absolutely. No, I, mean, I think <laughs> I'd agree with you. Um, like, so you continue to work with Kirk and Durka, um, but yeah. I also noticed that you designed for uh, the open air theater in Regent's Park. Um, was that after you moved to the UK and how did you get that? Going? I haven't moved to the UK. Oh, I sorry. Never, never was... moved to the UK. No, I'm still, I'm, I'm, I'm currently residing in Belfast because ah. uh, my missus is, is here, but no, I've been based in Dublin. I don't know where I picked that up from. So I'm sorry about that. Um, no, no, no. Um, now Regent's, Regent's Park is a really interesting space because it is, while it's open air, it's it's it like it is actually a venue like it yeah, is a venue it's got like a stage it's got fixed seating it's um it's a tri it's a kind of tricky space to work in mm. um a little bit but uh but no one i've done two shows there and they've been they've both been really really good and mm. really good to work on um and i suppose yeah even even like it's probably quite weatherproof and everything even in comparison no, to that's, oh no that's, no that's the one thing it's not the one thing that and it's bizarre because it's it's quite close to the zoo mm. so uh and you do that you do your lighting notes at night mm. so um you usually have quite a few <clears throat> technical sessions and dress mm. rehearsals and then you do notes and notes can sometimes go on till about 11 o'clock at night. And then you've got till two or three in the morning to do your notes. Mm. So everybody goes and it's just, you know, one or two crew, yourself and a programmer. Mm. And um, it can get freezing. Like, even though it operates in summer months, it gets mm. so cold. And you can hear the lions in the zoo. <laughs> <laughs> and it feels like they're in the neck. It feels like they're just around. It feels like they're outside having a beer, waiting for you to finish. Oh god! <laughs> <laughs> but it's um, yeah, it's a really good place to work. I mean, it's it's again amazing the work that they do. Mm. Um, 
they're absolutely brilliant and it's a fantastic night at the theater mm. and in in many respects i wish we had a similar space here because yeah. i think it could work you know if it works in london it can yeah absolutely why not no I reason mean, why phoenix park here. is a is a nice big spot you know absolutely absolutely like there's any number of spaces here and there's it's it's interesting to look at those kind of venues that they have um boats you know, because the other thing that I do quite a bit of is um, uh, I work with these summer opera companies in the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of them are kind of attached, are, are built in almost in temporary structures mm-hmm. attached to big country houses or oh, right, yeah. big country houses. Right. And um, they're kind of extraordinary uh, uh, organizations because. They don't get any arts council funding. These are totally privately funded, mm. um, and uh, but the work that they do is really, really impressive. Mm. Um, and it's it it's kind of brilliant, and it's kind of brilliant. And it also, um, you know, there there is that tendency to think of it as being well. Is that just for lots of rich people? And to a large extent. It is, mm-hmm. but they also do. Um, I mean, Grange Park Opera, a company that I've been involved with for a long time, I have a sister company called Pimlico Opera that do a lot of work in prisoners, in in prisons, mm-hmm. and with ex-offenders. Mm-hmm. Um, so they they do have kind of reasonable social conscience as well. Mm-hmm. And um, there's another, uh, I just think, fantastic organisation in London, quite close to Regent's Park, which is Holland Park Opera. Mm. Uh, I've never worked there, but I've seen some of their shows, and they're just a fantastic organization. Mm. Uh, uh, so again, uh, I, as well as doing a lot of theater, I do do quite a bit of opera, mm. and I still think we're stuck in Ireland. I still think we're, I feel we're still stuck in this rush of thinking of opera as something for posh people. Mm. Um, yeah, as well, I suppose there's a lot of historical, cultural baggage there, you know. Um, yeah. But I suppose, sure. I mean, but what about, say, you know, organizations like Wexford Opera Festival, you know, um, I know they, well, maybe their they're, they're, tickets are quite expensive, but I, I seem to recall that they had like some deals available, you know. Yeah, I think Wexford, Wexford are brilliant, but I think any opera company, be it Irish National Opera or, and I love what Irish National Opera are trying to do at the minute, because they're, they've been one company, along with the Abbey, who I think have been really um, uh, looking down the barrel of COVID and saying, right, come on, bring it on. Mm. We're going to, we're going to keep working. We're going to keep producing work. Mm. We're going to keep employing artists. We're going to keep freelance artists with at least something, um, both from uh, you know a job, so you've got a little bit of income, but also just so that you've got something to focus your creative mind yeah. on. Yeah, yeah. Way more. You, you were saying that you were working with them recently. Yeah, I just what did. Like, they, they did. They did twenty um, short. They commissioned. Uh, Irish National Opera commissioned twenty short operas, uh, which were going to which were made 
into films, almost mm. like um, music videos. Uh, so they they twenty mu twenty music videos. They got a bunch of theatre directors, myself, Sarah Bacon, uh, and Katie Davenport, uh, and various other people were just kind of brought in, um, and. Uh, I've got the opportunity to work with Hugh O'Connor, who was kind of the series director, mm -hmm. uh, uh, film director. And I, again, I think I speak for everyone when I say it was a tremendous experience. We had great mm. fun doing mm. them. Um, they're going to be released on the INO website in, I think, the 17th of December is the big launch date. And it's brilliant to... Mm. Um, uh, to, to to think that work like that is is happening, and you know, I just saw the um, you know, it just it comes kind of hot on the heels after the Abbey doing their fourteen voices from the bloody field, mm -hmm. and I just think that was a brilliant initiative as well. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, I, th I think these things are really really important to to do, and I think both of them are extraordinary if you can consider that they were both made under level five lockdown. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. So I think it's absolutely a testament to both companies mm -hmm. that uh, they just did phenomenal work. Brilliant. I've, I've completely lost track of uh, the, the questions, but I think so it's fine. <laughs> um, I'm going to go back a little bit um, to, uh, to ask you about, so I'd ask you about the equipment that you're using back in the '90s, and and I, when we were talking about you know the outdoor fluorescence, you know from Wojciech and that sort of thing, um, like what kind of uh, equipment are you using these days? Crikey, uh, um, well I've just done the Great Hunger mm -hmm. in the grounds of Vima, mm -hmm. and so that was an outdoor um, promenade piece. Mm -hmm. And funny enough, I used a lot of exterior fluorescence. Mm. And, uh, but things now like Titan tubes that, uh, I don't know, the Astera Titan tubes that are oh, yeah, yeah. fantastic, <coughs> battery powered, what, mm. run them off Wi Fi, so there's no cabling. Yeah. Um, Sarah Jane Shields was singing their praises the other day, actually, as well. Yeah. They're, Absolutely brilliant. And it's funny because I used because Irish National Opera bought a whole rake of them. Mm -hmm. And we used them, we used them in the film. They're, they were originally uh, a film unit. Mm -hmm. But they're IP rated, they're perfect for outdoors mm -hmm. use. And um Estera, the company that make them, have a range of other fixtures uh that are similar. Mm -hmm. You know, they've got these tiny little um battery operated lights that are you know the size of your hand mm. uh, but have a, the similar led chip uh, and are really really punchy mm. so uh, and the extraordinary thing is they have a magnet or an extraordinary feature not the extraordinary feature is they they're, they're casing it there's a magnetic part in the casing so mm. like we were like oh, popping them really yeah. lampposts, yeah, the, yeah, the, yeah. the old metal lampposts in emma um God, so fantastic. It, it was yeah. just fantastic to 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 be able to 
have lights where, you know, you ask the question about, you know, I really want a light here, mm. but, you know, is it going to be an awful lot of grief from a cable or a PowerPoint of view? Mm. And, I mean, the only issue that we had, well, we had a couple of issues in Emma, but the, the only kind of real technical issue was the range of, because the site was so big mm. and we were trying to operate stuff off Wi-Fi that sometimes it just, we just couldn't do it. Mm -hmm, just, mm -hmm. The range was too big. Right. <clears throat> okay. um, but that's, that's the sort of stuff, like I, I would love to use more of that because I think that um, just in terms of bang for your buck, but also in terms of it's, it's way more economical to, to, to use something like that. Mm. Um, you know, when I think about doing shows like, uh, like The Great Hunger um, now and what we would have done, say we were doing the same show in the 90s, oh. we would have need, needed twice the amount of cabling, we would have yeah. needed twice the number of generators, we had two generators and one mm. of them was for emergency lighting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, and we had to have that one. So mm. the other one was kind of for like desks, you know. And, and actually, if if probably if we thought about it, and if we were if we hadn't been in level five, we probably could have brought more equip more of the Astera battery equipment over and not hired mm. uh, generators. Mm. So that, I mean, I just I I love the possibilities of. Um, I love the possibilities of new equipment simply because I think that um, they give just so many more possibilities, just so many possibilities. Yeah. Um, and you can respond and react to a situation. So you could do things like have fades where you're just changing a color temperature mm. that somehow is working with the fate of the natural light. Um, mm. those, those kind of refinements, um, which I think are really potentially magical. Yeah. I mean, do you, do you think LED technology has kind of advanced to the, you know, we we're kind of being told that it would replace, you know, generic lighting completely. Do you think it's getting to that point now where it's hard to tell the difference? And is there any, like, can you, environmentally and economically justify continuing to have like these big thousand watt lamps, you know? Um, gosh. Yes, I do think you can environmentally justify it because I think that, I think there's a, I think there's another way of doing it. I think we have to look at how we generate our power. Mm. And I think that, uh, you know, if, if uh, there was a greater emphasis put on renewable sources, then I, th I don't think the uh, renewable source of generation of power, I think that you could probably use, I'd feel happy about using my old school power cans because I don't think there's ever anything that's going to replace that. Mm. <clears throat> In just the same way as I don't think that, you know, from time to time, if you use an old 5K film light, the light that you get off that, particularly at 10, 20%, it's, it, there's mm. nothing else that's going mm -hmm. to give you that. Um, 
and I think everybody will probably have their own favorites. I mean, I love um, Park Hands. I think they're fantastic. I think mm. that you know, they are a fantastic tune. And um, yes, I'll absolutely use an LED Park Hand when an LED Park Hand is the appropriate tool to use. But mm-hmm. I'll still want to use, I'd, I'd still love to have the flexibility of using a, a Park Hand. Mm. I know that my green credentials have just been um, stamped all over and uh, thrown out the window. And I don't mean to belittle it because it's not, I mean, I think it is a huge concern. I think that every one of us have to look at what it is that we do and look at seeing how can we do it in a more um, environmentally friendly way. Mm. I completely agree with that. But I just wonder if the emphasis is slightly wrong about getting rid of um, all of the tools at our disposal. Mm, mm-hmm. um, like I still love there. Uh, there's a particular type of light that you get out of a carbon arc um, source mm. that you can't get. Like, yeah, you can kind of mimic it, but it's yeah. It's, it is a fantastic, fantastic light. So. Mm. I suppose as well, it comes back to your, what were you saying earlier about the, you know, the concrete blocks, the, the being true to the form or, yeah. I'm sorry, I can't remember the, the phrase you used. Integrity of material. Integrity of material thank you. So, oh, so yeah. in that, in that way, like having the, uh, you know, the actual tungsten source or the actual carbon arc, when that's the sort of light that you're trying to, make sometimes that just you just have to have that you know like one of the things that we had um in one of the short films the the opera films one of the directors wanted um a lot of uh, filament lamps uh, mm-hmm. that would feature in mm-hmm. quite a few shots and they're quite expensive to get incandescent filament lamps now, like it's difficult to get. Mm. In, it's no problem to get the LED version of, mm-hmm. but they don't dim as beautifully, and mm. they still don't dim as beautifully. Um, so I think until that technology is able to do to to to, to dim as beautifully mm. down to something, then I think we'll always, you know, a candle is still a magical thing. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and uh, you know, a, an oil lamp or a gas lamp—they're also really, really beautiful things. Mm. So, um, we don't get the opportunity because of uh, regulations and restrictions to use um, gas lamps. One of the things I wanted to do for <coughs> the Great Hunger was to have um, those camping butane lanterns. Mm. Weren't allowed. And, you weren't allowed. No, there's all kinds of issues about um, them not being culture from a health and safety point of view, apparently. It's a shame. Yeah. Well, yeah, but I know it's fully understandable, but the, the light that you get out of them is really mm. kind of magic, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, could you like try and describe your artistic process? Now that's a that's a big question. <laughs> but um I suppose like how would how how do you approach um say a new project? Maybe like to, to to minimize that question down a little bit, like 
how would you uh, say somebody called you and and said and you were having your first meetings or what kind of way would would you try and do some research beforehand or would you kind of I always I always would like it always if it's an existing script I always try and read it or if it's mm. an opera I'll listen to it and um if it's something you kind of you it's it's a very it's very rare but there's sometimes you'll have a script that's just that's uh, maybe not so good, or maybe you don't feel I can live with this script for, you know, months or to six weeks of rehearsal plus yeah. a couple of days to two weeks of tech plus mm. you know, mm-hmm. however long of previews, <clears throat> and you just think, do I really want to hear these lines all day every day? And so it's very rare, but there are moments where you just think, no, I can't. Mm-hmm. I, I just I can't do this. Um, Generally, I don't see there's not a one size fits all thing, so it's a tricky question. Mm. I like things that I feel are going to challenge me, I like things that I feel are going to frighten me, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. I like this feeling of going into a run through or going into a design meeting and going, I have no idea, I have no idea what to do here. I, mm. uh, I don't know why you've employed, and you're in your head, you're saying, I don't know why you've employed me. You could have gotten anybody else, but you chose me. And this is going to be the, the, wor- this is the worst decision you've made, and it's the worst decision I've made. <laughs> uh, and generally, from that, you kind of uh, you kind of stop yourself pity and you give yourself a kick in the arse, and you get on and you, you, you do it. I, I mean, f- it's always different. Um, Usually it's the people involved. It, like that's the first thing that will that will attract me. If if you enjoy working with the people, then pretty much any project is going to be enjoyable. It's going to be enjoyable to a certain level. Then if mm-hmm. the project is good, um, like if if, if I've uh, let me answer the question a different way. Say somebody mm-hmm. rings me up that I've never met before. Um, and they say we want to do this play, and they send me the play, and I read it, and the, and the play the play is kind of cool. And you meet with that person. It's can you have a conversation with them mm-hmm. where um, there's give and take, mm-hmm. um, because that's the basis of any good working relationship is good communication. Mm-hmm. Um, can you have? Do you feel you could ever? an argument with that person. And I don't mean a screaming row, but mm-hmm. <clears throat> could you have difference of opinions? Because mm. again, that's really important and how you resolve that is also really important. And you can usually tell, like I find, um, you know, if you have a first meeting with somebody and you talk about work that you've seen and, uh, you know, invariably there'll be something that, you like but invariably there might be something that you dislike and how mm. do you just talk about something that you dislike and it, it does the other person listen to your point of view or do they shut you down so that's mm. the kind of way i would start approaching it mm-hmm. um and uh then just the work itself and then the possibility of the work of what the work could be mm. um excites me and then i mean I'm, i wasn't totally being facetious when I said there is a certain fear element of um, this. There is also a negative um, 
energy that brews inside you that is a fear of screwing up mm. um, uh, and uh, I think all of those things just kind of crochet together and yeah. and, and make for an interesting make for an interesting project like mm. you know I walk across hot coals to work with Pat Kiernan and Kirk Aterica because I think he's brilliant mm. uh, uh, I love working with uh, Colin Morrison and K- Katrina McLaughlin, who have just worked with in The Great Hunger, because I think mm. they are both absolutely fantastic. Um, Jimmy Fay, who runs the Lyric in Belfast, one of my oldest mates, and is mm. again, we have the, we have the best time when we're working. But it, all of those people that I've mentioned, it's a completely different experience with mm. all of them, mm-hmm. and it's a completely different conversation with all of them. Um, and usually completely different arguments with all of them. Mm. Uh, but I really, really enjoy, I would really enjoy it. Um, yeah, I'm just trying to think now, there's probably somebody I work with more than all of those people who is going. <laughs> and they're probably not listening. <laughs> yeah, they're probably tuned out at this Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're like, God, he's going on. Yeah, um, shut up. <laughs> um, one company you did work with recently um, to great success was uh, Asylum um, mm. and congratulations on your Irish Times Theatre Award. Um, I, I actually, I haven't seen the show. I, I didn't mm. manage to get down. Um, I was having conversations with uh, May when we were working together uh, last year. Um, had you worked with Asylum before that show? Or no? No, I hadn't. I mean, my connection with it was through the producer Maura O'Keefe, mm-hmm. uh, who I have worked with quite a bit before. Yeah. And uh, so she brought me in. And, I'll be uh, interviewing her on Monday. Oh, brilliant. She's yeah. great. She's yeah. Terrific. Um, so, um, yeah, she she was the she was the point of contact. And mm. uh, now I just I. I loved the book. I mean, it was, again, that was brilliant because um, she sent me the novel mm-hmm. and uh, the Tom Kilroy novel that it's based on. So I read that. It's a fantastic read. It's a really, really beautiful book. Mm. And I had absolutely no idea. I knew nothing about the story behind us or the history mm. of us. Um, and it's all based on a true story that mm. still has you know, that still kind of echoes and resonates through the the, the town mm. of Callan, which yes. is just outside Kilkenny. And uh, I went down and met Donald and Maeve, uh, director and designer, and mm. uh, we got on like a house on fire and it was a massive team of people involved mm. in it. Um, mm. All of whom were just fantastic. And uh, the show was huge mm. um, i mean it took it took up the whole town right was it was, yeah. it was <coughs> it's a, in it, going the, i mean in terms of ambition street. and yeah. scale there was no shortage there was no shortage of either mm. um and it was it, it it really felt something extraordinary it also feels like uh it was a lifetime ago because my abiding memory is is being in these very narrow streets 
with hundreds of people. Like there's a massive cast. There's you know, almost a hundred people in the cast. Yeah. So right. I mean, double, <laughs> treble that in terms of your audience. Yeah, so yeah, it yeah. felt like you were. It felt like you were coming out of. Lansdowne Road after a match it just felt that there was people all over the place so that that was something that was really uh, that feels like it, it, it happens in another world. I mean, well yeah I mean in, um, just even in, in Covid context you know yeah. just being in that throng of people is, is exactly yeah exactly. we haven't That's had for so many months. But also there was other things like the thing that and you, we talk a little bit about off-site work and it's a thing that I just, I don't know how they managed to do this, but our, yeah, I think it was our technical, our dress rehearsal and our first pre, no, it was our dress rehearsal and our first night mm. were, the rain was biblical. Oh God. Um, and how they managed to get all of these costumes dry and recycled. That was the thing that I just was so, so, so impressed with. Mm. And how my crew managed to get everything, all the rig dry, I should also say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, was, uh, they were terrific in that respect too. Um, but um, yeah, the rain was something else. Mm. Uh, it really, really was. It was just, it would, that would put you off. Yeah. I mean, it sounds kind of miserable, but it also sounds sort of epic. It, considering the subject matter, which was, you know, it was about this schism in, in the church uh, mm. in Kilkenny and it, literally about the, these two tribes pulling apart. Um, it it felt so right. It, mm. it you know if you were shooting the movie, it yeah, was exactly yeah. the weather that you'd have while while the movie was on. Yeah. But also the yeah. other thing that it it helped do was because this was going through the town, mm. um, we were using streets that other people were using. So we were parading through streets, um, and it meant on the days when it was fine, people would be outside a pub having a smoke, drinking. Mm because it was torrential there was nobody about except right. except people. the audience and the performers exactly yeah. so i think we had the the run of the place you know class um i'd like to ask you kind of i suppose a political question um if i may um you can decide whether you want to answer it after i ask it i suppose uh in the irish times this one uh, I, I, way too much way too much um so in the Irish Times article um, on April 4th, uh, reporting the awards, um, you were asked about the Arts Council uh, Facebook initiative that had just been announced. And you said, uh, quote, we have already come through years of austerity and many companies have gone by the wayside. The government response to this crisis seems so poorly conceived, end quote. Um, and I think that's a view that was shared by many artists at the time. Um, now we have a new government but still we have the same COVID crisis. And do you still feel the government's response is poorly conceived with regards to the arts? Ooh, that is a really good question. Um, I think the one thing I think they've done really well is they seem to have listened to the national campaign for the arts. And then I was really impressed 
with how the National Campaign for the Arts um, represented our community um, and lobbied on our behalf. Mm -hmm. And I think that the funding that has been secured as a result of those meetings has been a huge achievement. Mm. Um, I particularly was impressed with, um, there was an Oireachtas committee meeting where um, representatives of the National Campaign from the Arts and EPIC and there was another, um, another organization for live, live venues and mm -hmm. live, live events. And they each had each other's back. And I thought mm. that was brilliant. And I thought that, that showing, showing us as a united front, <clears throat> it felt very, um, that felt very positive and very inspired and very inspiring. Um, I think that uh, working through on various projects while we have been under the shadow of COVID has been really interesting the way that companies themselves have stepped up to the mark. Mm. So I mentioned the Abbey and INO. Mm. Um, <clears throat> we did the Great Hunger under, I think it was level three restrictions. Mm -hmm. So there was all kinds of um, uh, changes had to be made to the show. And the show was made you know, again, testament to everybody involved in, in this and respect to everybody involved in this. The show was made so that it could uh, be fleet in terms of having to respond to mm. the various restrictions. Mm. And I think that um, they, did, they did extremely well. I think the fact that we were still able to film the 20 short films for Irish National Opera under tier five, restrictions I think is brilliant um, insofar as I felt that the company's responsibility to us I never felt in any at any time that um, the company I was working for was doing anything that was putting me at risk mm. um, you know the the whole working day was structured. Everybody was distanced in such a way. If a singer was singing live, there had to be a six meter distance between the singer and the camera and the camera people. Mm -hmm. um, it was phenomenal. <clears throat> mm. um, so getting back to a government response, I'm disappointed that, um, so that now this week, Cinemas are reopening tomorrow, mm. I think, but theatres can't. And I think that I'm disappointed that um, not because we can have, you know, of course we can't have, um, though we can't be crowded in the streets of Callan. Mm -hmm. We can't all be uh, bunched into uh, seating like people are at a Trump rally. Mm -hmm. Every, you know, we would be talking about small audiences with distance in between. But the effect of doing a show, uh, I found hugely inspiring and hugely important for not just for me, but for everybody involved in the show. And I feel it was hugely beneficial uh, to 
beneficial, but I, I felt it was a big deal for the people who did, the few people who did manage to get to see mm. the great honor. I, yeah. I, I felt it was a very good thing. Mm. Um, so I, I would love if the same care and attention went to live performance as for example, it's being extended to, to cinema. I, I'm, I'm not a great social media user, but I saw a tweet that Ed Guiney from Element Pictures put up today about, we're really excited about the fact that the Lighthouse cinemas in Dublin are opening tomorrow. Mm. I hope theatres will, will open soon. Mm. And I, I completely echo that, uh, that sentiment because, you know, as I say, if, it's, if you're only letting even 50 people into a space as big as the Abbey or 20 or 10, 20 people into the project. I think that's something. And mm. I think it, it, it means that the, the engine is still purring and turning over and the muscle hasn't completely atrophied. Mm. Um, so I'm disappointed. So yes, I'm disappointed that this government hasn't, um, maybe done a little bit more in terms of uh, looking at not just theatre but also music um, because I think it's important I, I think it's important for people to, to, to socialise I myself apart from these two um, instances where I've worked have been pretty much staying at home Mm. I've been pretty much confined to barracks mm -hmm. and there's something wonderful about having the social interaction that is far more important than the show that you're working on mm. and I think that our audiences will benefit from 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 that I again I'm probably talking drivel um again but I, don't think I, so. I just I I don't feel we in Ireland, we pride ourselves on how seriously we take theatre. But I think that to a certain extent, some of that pride is slightly delusional. Um, I think that we as theatre practitioners, we as people who are part of this community, it's hugely important to us. But I don't think it's hugely important um, to or to to politicians mm. um, or, or public health doctors yeah well it's it's interesting that you should say that but my sister is a my sister is an immunologist really and she would um she would be very uh keen mm. for the for live events to recontinue we've we've had many conversations about mm. this and her That's interesting um her perspective is very much from mental, you know, if you can do it in a safe way. Sure. Um, that's always the caveat. Mm -hmm. But the benefit, the greater benefit of having people being able to socialize and interact uh, in a controlled situation, as opposed to not being able to socialize at all, or only being able to socialize online. Mm -hmm. I, I, I think that, you know, there, there, are ben there, there are benefits to be reaped from having that social interaction.
Mm. I mean, there there is a uh, caveat actually where you you can actually have an audience of fifteen people at an event if it is outdoors. Mm. Um, so, I mean, is there maybe something to to look into there that we are now? Weather isn't great, and you know, offsite shows usually take a lot more um, pre-planning than, say, if you were to put on a sort of impromptu or improvised event or something like that in the theater. But it's not beyond the pale either that there could be some small performances, you know. Oh, I th I think so, absolutely, and I think that you know, I think that um, you know, I wonder, for example, could you use the arc? Uh, and Meeting House Square, mm -hmm. could that become, um, uh, you know, is that considered an outdoor venue? Um, because you could have the performers perform inside the arc. <coughs> I don't know. I don't, the I don't, umbrellas, I don't, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, it's, it's, I suppose it comes, there's, there's so many facets really across, you know, whether it's weddings or, or bars or, or something like that, but there's so many, you know, where it's, it's very niche interrog, you know, uh, interpretations but, but of regulations. It, it is, but at the same time, and I mean, again, I'm possibly going to contradict myself. I would love, I'd kind of, you know, one of the things that you look at is if you look at the, those infection graphs and if you look at what the, that first wave that happened around March, April, and that that kind of declined. And so you were having very few cases as a result of the immediate lockdown. And, the, and then after things started to open up, suddenly we're back in this position where we're, you know, we're repeating ourselves. Um, part of me, I'd love to do, uh, I'd, I'd be all on for doing what New Zealand did and, you know, doing six mm. weeks of really, but knowing that this is light at the end of the tunnel. Mm. I guess I'm feeling a little bit optimistic about the possibilities of vaccination. Mm -hmm you know we just have to keep we just have to keep this together for a little bit longer i agree that doing shows outdoors is i think it's a brilliant I, I, look i think it's a brilliant thing to do but i think it's an audience of 15 is hard to get mm -hmm. excited about and it's yeah. hard to be excited about when you are that audience member. One mm. of the things that I think that's brilliant, say for example, go back to Wojciech where we 250 people. Mm. When you're moving, as a, you can completely lose yourself mm. in that body of an audience. Where, where you're one of 10 or 15 or 20 people, you, you're, I, I would feel quite self-conscious being in that situation. Oh, I see. All right. Because I was going to say, I mean, there's also sort of an excitement of like the exclusivity of a small audience, you know? Um, oh, listen, I think, I, I, I think there is, but I think that I still miss being, somebody said, one of the um, campaigners for the, the, the National Campaign for the Arts said she, she was looking forward to the day when we could all be sweating in tents. Oh, yeah. And that to me encapsulates <laughs> absolutely everything. It's that being at latitude and seeing the condensation running down the tent because everybody is in there dancing mm. their heads off, having a great time. Mm -hmm. And that's what <clears throat> that's really what I miss. Mm. And yes, I think there's a there's a benefit, and I think that 
there's something really laudable about doing um, uh, outdoor performances. And that's what The Great Hunger ended up being. We did, we played to 15 people per, we did performances to 15 people four times a night. So 60 people got to see it in the end per night. Um, and I think it is absolutely brilliant that that happened because it, it, right the way up to the day before our tech, it was still, it could have gone either way. Mm. So it felt like an achievement. Mm -hmm. But I think that what I would love to do is I'd love to see, uh, I just love to see ways. And I believe there are ways that we could um, increase the audience without increasing the risk prior to the full rollout of the vaccination. Mm. Um, do you think like that streaming online has a part to play in, in something like that? Definitely. Definitely. I mean, I think that it's 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 a code that we haven't cracked. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that one of the things that COVID has thrown up is this um, need and desire for people to uh, want to experience uh, a sense of live performance. But not um, we just don't really have I don't think we've cracked the code for the right platform. Mm -hmm. uh, for it uh, I've seen loads of streaming performances mm -hmm. um, on various different platforms on Zoom where they've tried to introduce some audience interaction for me that doesn't really work mm -hmm. um, lots of stuff like the you know people talk about the gold standard of streaming like the, the National Theatre or the Metropolitan Opera live stuff. And I think they're fantastic. But they do, it does feel like a whole television production. Mm. And I do, I think it's it's a budget and it's a methodology of working that's, for most of the companies I would work for, is just not mm. possible. Mm -hmm. So I think we have to find a, you know, I think we do have to find another way. And I think we need to find a way that, um, that, that looks at the experience of the viewer and keeps the viewer in mind and engaged. Um, because the, the engagement that you have for a live performance piece, when you're sitting in an auditorium, in a packed auditorium, I think is different to the engagement that you have watching a film on a screen in a mm -hmm. packed cinema. Mm -hmm. And I think it's different again from sitting at home watching a piece of television on Netflix. Mm -hmm. All of these, have, there are different levels of engagement. And mm. I think that even, you know, watching, um, say, a, uh, I'm just a play, watching a production of Romeo and Juliet in the Abbey um, has, a di has a different engagement for you as an audience member to watching a movie of Romeo and Juliet mm -hmm. and a different mm -hmm. emotional um effect mm. uh, on you as an audience so yeah i think I, I but like i've said this before where i think that if you look at the space that podcasts have carved for themselves within our consciousness but also in terms of as an entity on the internet they're not audiobooks they're not radio 
programs. An mm-hmm. audiobook and a radio program can be a podcast, mm-hmm. but we consume podcasts. In a, like we might consume list to one before you go to sleep, or list mm-hmm. to one when you're mm-hmm. driving, or when you're going for your walk in the morning. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that performance live performance needs to carve out a similar sort of space for itself on the internet. Mm. Because one of the things that I think is really important is uh, how we archive our work. There will Mm. now be an expectation that the standard of how we film and capture our performance work going forward is done to a much better standard than we have been doing it heretofore. Mm. Excellent. That's my two cents. Okay. we might leave it there, um, Paul. <laughs> thanks, thanks very much. Um, that's been Thank absolutely you. fascinating uh, chatting with you, and um, I really appreciate it. Not at all. Anytime. Thanks very much. So, uh, thanks to Paul for the interview. Uh, great to get an insight into his work. Thanks as well to the Arts Council for supporting this project and to astronaut Mike Dexter for composing the music. In the next episode, I'll be speaking to producer Maura O'Keefe. Talk to you then.